Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, the final week, called Defending the Faith. So let's turn in our Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 to 25, and Luke 13, 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Does God Allow Suffering? Years ago, while I was attending seminary in Southern California, I was standing in an immigration line, and both Kathy and I were receiving our green cards, which is our permanent residency status in the United States. You know, in that same line, there were people from all over the world, and the conversation between people was fascinating. I fell into a conversation with a Vietnamese man, and he told me that he had abandoned his Buddhism because of his experiences in the Vietnam War. And I asked him why, and he told me his religion had no satisfying answer to the problem of suffering. I had established that I was a Christian, and and he wanted to know if Christianity could answer some of his questions. And so as we waited our number being called in the process of our immigration status, we fell into this long conversation about God and his great love and the reality of suffering. As I think about that interesting morning, I'm reminded that a conversation about God and suffering is a universal conversation. I know it's an intellectual question, that is, how can suffering logically exist alongside of an all-powerful and loving God, but it also is an intensely personal and emotional question. That's because suffering touches all of us. If you haven't suffered yet, you will. No one will avoid suffering. It touches every single human life, either directly or because of its impact on someone close to you. I recently spoke at a church that I had served some 20 years ago, and I was struck by how many people I had once known sat there by themselves because their spouses had passed away. You know, suffering is that one human experience that we all share, regardless of culture and race and language, nationality, sex, income, or religion. And I have a memory. When the Twin Towers came down as a result of terrorists on, on September 11, 2001, I had a woman write me a letter. She was so shocked by what had happened, it shook her belief in God. Up till then, she was convinced that God would never allow such a thing to happen. And I had to remind her that although 2,973 innocent people lost their lives that day, and that the matter was tragic indeed, that this was but a small drop in the earth's suffering, hadn't she been paying attention? Did she know that the death toll in the 1994 Rwandan genocide was the equivalent of two 9-11s happening every single day for 100 days? You know, I say this because 9-11s are not rare occurrences at all. The 2004 tsunami in Asia killed over one quarter million people in a single day. Over 20,000 African children die every day, mostly from preventable diseases. Did you know that in the year 1918, that year alone, 6% of the Earth's population died in a flu pandemic, far more than were killed in both world wars? Did you know that in 1931, a great flood in China swept away anywhere between 1 to 4 million people? Did you know that the deaths that resulted from the Second World War are probably around 75 million people? How quickly we forget these things until the day that suffering comes to our doorstep. You know, in that moment, many look through the eyes of blinding pain and astonished and overwhelmed say, how could God have allowed this? In truth, we should have asked that question a long time ago. 
A daily suffering in this world, including diseases and natural disasters and accidents and wars, starvation, so overwhelming that if you think about it, it would engulf and terrify our souls. What's more, you and I will not be immune. Soon the groans and suffering of the human race will come to you. C.S. Lewis, after his wife contracted cancer, a cancer that would take her life, wrote the following. If I had really cared as I thought I did about the sorrows of the world, I should not have been so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. We might want to think about that quote, but in truth, most of us go through life not noticing the sufferings of the world. We're either too afraid to pay attention or we're too self-absorbed to pay attention. But if you allowed yourself to notice, you would know that you're not immune. And against this background of the terror that stalks the human race comes the most pressing of all questions, why are things the way they are? Of course, there have been many attempts to make sense of what's going on. The atheist answer is, it's just part of natural selection. Nature combined with blind chance, well, it's the luck of the draw. Furthermore, only the fit survive. If you don't belong to the fit, you're going to die to allow evolution to march ever forward. And by the way, does that sound like a hopeful and satisfying answer? I suspect not. And that's why no one ever invites an atheist priest to minister to him or her in his or her hour of need. The Buddhist and the Hindu answer is karma. You're being punished for something done in a past life. Of course, you can't remember what it is that you've done, but what goes around comes around. Things are just balancing themselves out. Logically, then, those who perish today, such as those in the Twin Towers, they had bad karma. Well, then, of course, there's the answer of those who hold process theology. Process theology is the belief that God is in process. You know, please remember that the Bible teaches the opposite. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. See, according to the Bible, God does not mature. He never learns a new thing. He never develops. He never grows his character. He is from eternity past to eternity future, always the unchanging, fully perfect being in which nothing can be added. But process theologians have conceived of a God who is not perfect, but is growing and changing and developing and learning. And so the answer of process theology to the problem of suffering is that God cares and he's doing the best he can, but, but no one's perfect. He just can't get around to everyone. As Woody Allen said of this God years ago, he's not evil, he's just an underachiever. But the Christian faith has an entirely different answer. The answer begins with the most basic and fundamental affirmation. God is good, unchanging, all-powerful, and sovereign. We cannot here recount all of the attributes of God, but I wish for our purposes to concentrate on only three of his attributes. There are, of course, other attributes that bear directly upon this issue. I've already mentioned God's immutability, that is, he does not change. We could spend time on his holiness and his wrath, his omnipresence, meaning that he is present to all spaces at all times, and that would be significant because God not only sees all suffering, but he is directly present to it. But for our purposes, I'd like to concentrate on just three important attributes. The first is God's goodness, the second his omnipotence, and the third, his sovereignty. So let's start with his goodness. And here I have in mind a bundle of attributes that include his love, his mercy, his grace, his patience, and so on. I have in mind the revelation of himself that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When we speak of his goodness, we mean that the things that God does are worthy of approval. I mean here that all things done by God are morally excellent. Indeed, that God himself is the standard by which we judge what is good and what is not. According to James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You see, that would mean whatever good is found in this world is because God himself has willed it to be there. Okay, let's look briefly at his second attribute, that is, his omnipotence or his power. When we speak of omnipotence, we mean that God is able to do all that he wills to do. Let's put that in plain language. Years ago, Mick Jagger sang, you can't always get what you want. But while that's true of every single human being, it's not true of God. Listen to Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you that have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Or Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or again, Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And so to make the matter plain, it's an easy thing for God to snap his fingers and all suffering would come to an end. Now, the third attribute of God that is of interest here is his sovereignty, even his providence. Not only is God able to do all that he wills, but he directly rules over all things. God is involved in the creation to the extent that he keeps the creation going on a moment-by-moment basis and that he actively directs the creation to fulfill his purposes. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 and 16. The passage is speaking about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. And then on to verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that would mean that everything that happens is directed by Christ himself. All of this has so much to say about God and the existence of suffering. God is the only true hope for living life in all its fullness. When we turn from the deadness of our sins, God sends refreshing life through Jesus. That's our national need. This is the message of Back to the Bible Canada, broadcast coast to coast to renew hearts and homes by the grace of Jesus Christ. Tracy recently wrote, you have brought me the life-changing news of the gospel in so many ways that I can understand and apply to real life. What a joy to hear of people growing through God's word. We're grateful to each of you for your prayers and support. We invite you to consider a one-time gift to Back to the Bible Canada, or make a monthly investment in this Bible teaching ministry through our Companions for the Gospel program. Our nation needs it. To give today or receive more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. The Bible surely teaches that God is infinitely good and loving, in whom there is no lack of power, and who has definitely not gone on vacation, but sustaining all things at each and every moment. 
and yet unblushingly and without apology, the Bible teaches us that real and genuine suffering exists in a world that is governed by just such a God. Of course, this is the very thing that people don't understand. If God is love and if he is all-powerful, then the kind of suffering we're talking about, they say, should not exist. But of course, this is not the end of the Christian story. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So the story of sin brought death and suffering into the world. But that's just a part of the story we all know. And I'm afraid that sometimes when you know only a part of the story, you come to all the wrong answers. Some people will say, well, the explanation for suffering is sin, which is, of course, true. But then they add, God has nothing to do with this. And I hope you see that denies the doctrine of God's providential involvement at each point in the creation. When we say suffering is just a part of sin and the natural consequences that come from living in a fallen world, we are denying the faith. And so we assume that God is deeply compassionate about the consequences about living in a sinful world, but has decided not to intervene, but let things just run their course until Christ comes again, when, when he will control all things again. And in the meantime, at least this is how some people describe it. God weeps over our sufferings, even promises us peace in the midst of suffering and the future glories of heaven to all who will believe, but does not intervene until the time of the end. But that's simply a wrong inference because the God of the Bible never talks that way. He predestines, according to Ephesians 1 verse 11, all things according to the purpose of his will. And what's more? And this is the kicker. According to the Bible, God is not embarrassed about the suffering in the world. That is, he is compassionate towards us, and he could stop it at this very moment, but he's not doing so and more so. He is sovereign over suffering, rules perfectly over suffering, doing with suffering exactly what he wants, and he is not apologizing for suffering. Some of us are uncomfortable with that, and that's the reason I have chosen Lamentations chapter 3 as our text. The entire book of Lamentation is written by Jeremiah the prophet, who personally witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. The Babylonian army came in and burned Jerusalem to the ground, and in the process, they killed many of the citizens of the city. Suffering, groaning was heard everywhere, and it is this experience that Jeremiah writes about. As we read, I want you to notice not that Jeremiah experiences suffering, but what he thinks is the reason for it. I'm reading Lamentations 3, 1 to 18. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the objects of their taunts all day long. 
He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Are you shocked by what I've just read? Not once, not twice. But 17 times Jeremiah says that all the suffering that he and Jerusalem have endured was caused by God. He states and restates and restates it again. Notice Jeremiah knows that God has done it because I would assume that his doctrine of God mandated that response. Since God is all-powerful and then sovereign and providential in all his dealings, what other conclusion could he come to? Now, knowing that God has done this and is not apologizing for it, might we ask how Jeremiah would respond to this? Would he turn from God and be bitter with God? Well, let's let Jeremiah speak for himself. I'm reading Jeremiah 3, 20 to 25. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Now, here's the great question. If God says he's responsible for the disaster, how can we, like Jeremiah, be overwhelmed with the mercy of God and not shake our fist at him in anger? Now, I know that some of us will say that this has happened to Israel because of their sins. God warned them over and over again, and they did not repent, and judgment did come. Now, is this not a special case? Surely this can apply to the vast majority of cases. Well, perhaps, but, but consider other passages of Scripture. God told Moses in Exodus 4.11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See, God takes credit for it. He's not embarrassed to say it. Isaiah 45, verse 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so once and for all, banish the thought that God has nothing to do with this stuff. Over and over again, he tells us that he does. So let's not make apologies for God. He's not making them for himself. Now here we must be careful. Because again, we might form an unwarranted conclusion. If God is good and sovereign, we might conclude that God reserves this kind of thing for the worst among us. You know, when the earthquake hit Haiti in 2010, killing more than 300,000 people, I remember reading of one pastor who assumed it had something to do with with a voodoo that was practiced there with, with spiritual darkness. The inference is that the people of Haiti were worse sinners than we are, and so they suffered in this manner. But that's wrong. When someone suffers from cancer, when someone's killed in a traffic accident, when someone has a heart attack at the age of 42 and dies, don't you dare make that conclusion that they sinned worse than you who are now 45 and doing fine. Jesus once was asked that very same question, and listen to what he said. I'm reading Luke 13, 1 to 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I mean, did you hear that? When that which seemed like a freak accident, a tower fell down, 
crushing the people beneath. The people thought, you know, maybe those people were worse sinners. And Jesus denies it. They were not worse sinners. But did you notice how Jesus did not answer? He didn't say, well, they weren't sinners and and therefore they didn't deserve it. He also didn't say, well, look, freak things just seem to happen. And really, that's just the result of living in a broken and fallen world. Bad things happen. And I'm so sorry it happened to those guys. No, no. He said, when you think about these things happening, see it as a divine warning. The question is not, why did these people suffer? The real question is, why didn't I suffer along with them? It's surely not my righteousness. It must be the mercy of God. Now, I could almost hear the response. But why doesn't God display the same undeserved mercy that I have received on those who did not receive it on that day? and who died when a tower suddenly and unexpectedly collapsed on them. And so, you see, I've only answered one question and not two. I've answered the question as to whether God had anything to do with it. And the answer is, the God of heaven most unequivocally answers, yes, I did. But we ask, but are you not good and kind, a God of mercy and abounding in loving kindness? And the answer is, yes, I am, for indeed he is. And that's the teaser. You've got to listen to me tomorrow. Find out how disaster and suffering is still an indication that God is love. But in the meantime, we must marvel at the mercy of God that on this day, we find ourselves alive and many of us in good health, and we should marvel that God has had mercy on us where we in fact did not deserve it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know that you are good and that we, like Jeremiah, marvel at the compassion of our God. Thanks, John, and I'm anxious to hear what you have to say tomorrow. But let me just ask you a quick question. You know, it becomes pretty obvious, even for those who have journeyed with Christ for some time, it really doesn't preclude us or exempt us from from suffering. Yeah, those who have been well-trained in the Bible know this from the outset. Uh, In fact, they even know that it is a privilege that is given to us. I'm talking about Philippians 1.29. It is a grace that has been given that we should suffer alongside of Christ and and therefore be identified with him fully. But sometimes individuals who have not been trained well or even had heretical teaching in their lives, I mean, suffering strikes them suddenly and they look bewildered and they think, how in the world could that happen? God would never allow that to happen. So I think, even though this is an apologetic series, Ben, I think it's important to speak to believers on occasion and to tell them what scripture actually teaches us so that when we give an answer or when we go through the deep valley of suffering, we actually aren't surprised as if something, as Peter says, unusual were happening to us. Thanks so much, John. And again, we look forward to hearing more from you tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. What happens when someone is converted? Is it possible to keep sinning after being genuinely saved? These are all questions you may have found yourself asking at some point in your spiritual journey. To that end, Dr. John Newfeld has an audio series called Your Salvation Story where he unpacks these difficult questions in detail and provides valuable insights that offer clarity and helps you to see the wonder of your redemption like never before. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering you this five-message CD series for free, accompanied by a special reflection guide 
crafted to help you get the very most out of this Bible teaching series. To request your CD series and guide, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate, the Reflection Guide is available only as supplies last and more can be purchased for group use.